Okay, so Scott, everybody for uh, for coming. Uh, we are tonight. We are scheduled to begin uh, the twelfth principle, twelfth out of thirteen, which means that we're getting uh, we're getting near the end, uh, which is on the one hand exciting, on the other hand uh, it means that we have to find another topic. So, so it's uh, it's sort of bittersweet how that uh, how that works. Uh, a couple of ideas uh, ideas that I'm working on, and we'll see what uh, what we can do. Okay, but in the meantime, so uh, here we have the uh, the 12th principle. So this is part of the last set of principles. The last four are part of a set of principles, which we've been, been saying all along, is the topic of um, reward and punishment. That when a divine being, the existence of a divine being, the instructions of the divine being, which we know as the Torah, and then the reward and punishment that the divine being has uh, has determined for the uh, the people who follow or don't follow his uh, his instructions. So here we get to one which is a little bit beyond, and we're going to discuss this a lot tonight. But it's a little bit beyond a standard discussion of reward and punishment, and this has to do with the uh, with the existence of Mashiach, and what exactly the idea behind uh, the Mashiach is uh, is all about. So before we get into the actual meat of the topic, uh, which is under, um, which is understanding why Mashiach, uh, why do we need a Mashiach, and our belief in him is why belief in Mashiach is such an essential and a fundamental principle of Judaism. First thing we need to do is we need to just understand what we're talking about when we talk about Mashiach. So there's a lot of misconceptions, a lot of things which people don't necessarily understand when it comes to Mashiach, and since we are now uh, on that principle of Mashiach, so I think it's important to go ahead and do, uh, to clarify all of that. You got it? the sound that goes on in my head. I can mute it. Okay. Now we're good. We're good. Okay. So, um, so the first thing we know about the Mashiach is that he is going to be a, a person of flesh and blood. Mashiach is not some, not some sort of angelic uh, um, uh, uh, figure. Um, and it's not something or it's not an angel or the son of God, which is born from a virgin mother, like uh, Christianity would, uh, would have us believe. But uh, it's something that the uh, Mashiach is going to be a person who's going to be born from a real father and a real mother uh, in the normal way that uh, children are, uh, are conceived and are, and are born. It's interesting that the Christian belief that, uh, that Mashiach is, or the Messiah, as they would refer to him, is going to, was born to a, a, a virgin, uh, the Virgin Mary. So that ultimately is, and it's something which uh, you should know. You can always ask a you know missionary if they go ahead and they approach you. So that's based on a mistranslation, a pretty clear mistranslation of the uh, the pasuk. The pasuk goes ahead and uses the Hebrew term Alma, Ayin Lamed Mem Hey, which means maiden. It's just is is one of the terms that we would use for a young woman. And in Christianity, for some reason, they decided that they're going to translate the word Alma as virgin, which is not actually the word for virgin. The Hebrew, we have a Hebrew word for virgin, and that is the basula. 
So they went ahead and they decided to go ahead and use the wrong translation for the for uh, for the uh, for that word. And as a result of that incorrect translation, they went ahead and they built this whole theology and this whole uh, idea revolving around the virgin birth of uh, of, uh, of Yashki from the uh, from the Virgin Mary. And the uh, really has no basis what, uh, whatsoever. Now, this person who will eventually become a Mashiach, born to a uh, a mother and father of flesh and blood, so this person is going to be a direct descendant of the original monarchy of of, of Klal Yisrael, which is which began with David HaMelech. So that's one of the things which is also essential to uh, to uh, to be mindful of, is that whoever the Mashiach is going to be is. A benach or benach or benach or benach or ben, however many times you're going to go ahead and multiply that out, of David HaMelech. And the Mashiach himself is going to be, is going to serve the role as king. That's why he's referred to as the Melech HaMashiach. He's going to be the king who is the, uh, the anointed one. And his job, if you look at his LinkedIn page, so his LinkedIn page is going to say that he is going, he is the king in Eretz Yisrael. He's going to govern in the land of Israel. And the Raman tells us that his fame and reputation are going to spread throughout the world. So he's not going to be known just locally by the Jews who are living in Eretz Yisrael, but people the world over are going to be familiar with his accomplishments, with his status, with his, uh, his role in the world. And his greatness and righteousness is something which is going to be so well known and recognized that uh, other nations of the world, so they're not only going to make an effort to make peace with him, because you always want to make peace with, uh, you know, the uh, the alpha male or the alpha in the room to go ahead and get on the good side of the of the alpha. But they're going to go ahead and they're going to recognizing his vital position in the world and the, the, the world history as, as a whole. So they're going to have a desire to serve Mashiach as well. So he's going to be king. He's going to be acknowledged by the world. The world is going to want to make peace with him, is going to want to make shalom with the, with the Mashiach, and they're going to want to go ahead and uh, serve. They're going to uh, uh, seek ways to be able to assist the Mashiach in his task, in his, uh, in, in his job. Now, the Rambam says, and this is based on uh, a Gemara in a number of places. The Gemara mentions this in a few places. But the Rambam makes it very, very clear that the only thing which is going to change, that there's not going to be this dramatic um, change in the way people live their lives upon the arrival of Mashiach, or the identity of, uh, of Mashiach. That's not going to be what, uh, what happens. But the Rambam says that the only thing which is really going to fundamentally change upon the revelation of Mashiach, or upon the arrival of Mashiach, is that the Jewish people will have independence as a people. We're no longer going to be subjugated or citizens of other countries of the world. We're not going to be French Jews or British Jews or uh, Moroccan Jews or Iraqi Jews or anything else. There's going to be nothing which is ahead of the uh, our, our status as being Jews. So we're going to simply be Jews. And Jews, by definition, as we're going to see, are going to be a people who are going to occupy our homeland. We're going to occupy Eretz Yisrael. And that's going to be the fundamental difference which is going to be different. So as opposed to having Jews living in Israel and then Jews living uh, in the diaspora, living all over the uh, the globe outside of Eretz Yisrael, 
in the time of Mashiach, one of the fundamental things which is going to occur is that we are going to, uh, we will all be living in Eretz Yisrael, and uh, exile comes to, uh, to an end. And as we said, the, uh, our, 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 our life as Jews in the, in the Holy Land, in the land of Eretz Yisrael, is going to be led by this person, which we call, refer to as Mashiach, who is going to be the, uh, the, the king. But as far as, uh, for the most part, our daily lives in the circumstances of people's lives, so that is going to remain consistent. So nobody should think that in the time of Mashiach, there won't be any poor people anymore who are in need. The Ram says very clearly that there's going to be rich people, there's going to be poor people, there will be strong people, there will be weak people. And the world, uh, uh, and all of those things will continue to exist. People still have to go to work. It's not going to be like when Mashiach comes, we all go into retirement and we're, uh, we're done with, uh, with, uh, with, with our work. I don't know if that means that those who are already retired will go come out of retirement. We'll have to figure that, that out. A few people for whom I think that may be a question, uh, Lemaisa, for them. But it's something which, uh, which uh, for the most part, the world will, uh, will, will continue. And, but the world will be a generally better place because there'll be this universal recognition of what Jews are, what the function of the world is, why uh, the existence of God, why God created the world, all of that is going to be known and understood, not only on an intellectual level, but it's something which people will be motivated to live their lives according to, uh, according to those principles. So it's not that everybody's going to become Jewish. There's no mandate at all in the Torah that everybody should be Jewish, but recognition of God as the creator. So that's something which is expected not only of the Jewish people, but that's something which is expected of non-Jews as well. So in this era of the Mashiach, so that recognition is something which will, uh, which will, uh, which will be known. And once the uh, uh, Mashiach has successfully done all of that, brought the Jews to the land, brought uh, recognition of God to the world. The world understands the um, special role that the Jewish people have in bringing the revelation of God, the awareness of God to the consciousness of, of mankind with all of that uh, being, uh, being accomplished. So Mashiach also is going to be responsible for rebuilding the Beis HaMikdash. So that will obviously be a, a pretty fundamental change because that's going to uh, impact in a very major way the nature of Avoda. One of the things which we talk about often is the great Chiddush, the great uh, um, uh, novel step which Chazal took, the men of the great assembly took towards the end of the second Beis Hamitosh when they went ahead and they introduced the concept of tefillah. Tefillah was something which was not formal at all. It wasn't a mandate. It wasn't dictated. There may even be, there, there is a machlogas, whether or not there's even an obligation to daven on a daily basis, midaraisa. But towards the end of the second Beis Hamitosh, when the Anshe Knesset Sagadola uh, were keenly aware of the fact that the second Beis Hamitosh is uh, its days are numbered, were numbered, and therefore we were going into this extended exile, during which we don't know when the next base Amitish is going to be rebuilt. Between the first and the second base Amitish, everybody knew that it was going to be 70 years. There was some confusion as far as how to calculate those 70 years, but it was known that it was going to be 70 years. 
So the leaders, the Gedolim of that generation, didn't feel compelled to put something in place to replace the third pillar of Avoda, of Korbanos, as the, uh, the main uh, avenue of serving God, because in short order, they'll return to Eretz Yisrael, there'll be a second base of Mitosh, they will resume the offering of Korbanos, and they didn't need anything, uh, they didn't need anything more during that time towards the end of the second base of Mingtush, so they had no idea what this what was in store for them. They just knew that it was going to be a long time, and that we don't know when the base of Mingtush was going to be rebuilt, and it was inconceivable to them that Klal Yisrael should exist for centuries upon centuries without having access to this third pillar, Torah, Avod, so for Klai Yisrael to live without one of the three pillars of the world, which is Avoda, so that was something which was inconceivable to them. And as a result of that, they innovated, Mamash, a, 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 a mind-boggling innovation, or a, a innovation as a replacement for Korbanos to replace that with the what we know to be Tefillah. So what we see is a fundamental part of Yiddishkeit, of Judaism, which is the, uh, the element of tefillah, of davening, tefillah b'tzibur, going to shul, all of those are those things which uh, for the last year plus we were struggling with so much. So all of that is ultimately a rabbinic innovation uh, to compensate for the lack of having a Beis HaMikdosh in the absence of being able to, or the inability, the, the absence of a Beis HaMikdosh and the inability to go ahead and offer korbanos. So one of the things which Mashiach is going to do is he's going to restore us to the good old days. As we all talk about good old days, as old as anybody here is who's going to be listening to this, even they don't remember the good old days of Abes HaMikdash and Karbanos actually being, uh, being offered. And this is going to be one of the major accomplishments of Mashiach is to go ahead and to get all of that restored, to put all of that back in place. It's not clear whether or not once we have korbanos again, are we going to be able to do away with tefillah b'tzibur? Are we going to be done with davening together? Or once that's in place, so that's going to remain in place. And there'll be two modes of avoda during that era. One will be the classic way, which is the offering of korbanos by the, the Kohanim, the Levim doing their uh, their song and dance or whatever. And Klaiso, members of Klaiso just being there representing the rest of the nation, or, uh, and we will no longer have Tefillah B'tzibur, or it's something which, uh, uh, or, or Tefillah B'tzibur will no longer be necessary because we will be in a state where our uh, the pillar of Avoda is fulfilled properly in its ideal manner with the offering of Karbanos. So that's going to be one of the things which we have to uh, wait and see. And this last point, which we said, that one of the primary tasks, one of the essential tasks of Mashiach is to go ahead and rebuild the Beis Amitosh and restore the Avoda, the pillar of Avoda, to its classic form of, of Korbanos. So this makes it clear that when we talk about uh, our yearning and our longing for the Beis Amitosh to be rebuilt, so we do not do so, and you often hear people uh, in response to hearing bad news, they say, oh, we need Mashiach. So we don't need Mashiach to go ahead and take care of bad news, to sweeten bad news or to undo bad news as if there won't be bad things which, uh, which happen. Uh, the purpose of Mashiach is not to make life more convenient. And it's not uh, because we want to go ahead and uh, uh, live an easy life. 
when you get to the parking lot, the jewel, and you can't find a parking spot nearby, you can't, it's inappropriate to say, oh, when Mashiach comes, then I'll have good parking spots. Having good parking spots has nothing at all to do with Mashiach. Mashiach is not going to come to make it easier for you to catch a light, make it easier for you to get that perfect uh, parking spot, which is nearby the entrance, rather than at the other end. So it's not about us. And it's also not that, uh, that the purpose of Mashiach is sort of a, uh, you know, a 60s and 70s peace, peace movement type of, uh, type of endeavor that, we are, uh, that, we, that we're wishing for. As if we're all peace activists and we just want all the fighting to end and war to cease and all of that. Uh, that's also not what Mashiach is, uh, is about, as we're going to see. That may be a byproduct of what occurs when Mashiach arrives, but we don't yearn for Mashiach just because we are anti-war, anti um, the draft, anti any of those, uh, you know, any of those, uh, any of those things. Nor do we want Mashiach because we want a fulfillment of some sort of Zionistic vision of having a Jewish homeland for the Jewish people, so that we don't have to wander around and get, uh, you know, tortured and suffer in the hands of uh, of anti-Semites uh, uh, around the world. As I said, as valuable as that is as well, that's not really why we're yearning for Mashiach. Because those are all things, all these things which we mentioned, that Mashiach is not about. So all of those are for the most part self-serving. We want them because it matches how we think the world should, uh, should be run. And we want it there because it'll make life easier for us. It'll make my, my life more pleasant. Uh, you'll be able to, you know, keep your doors open at night and let the kids play outside. You don't have to put all the toys away or lock your doors or anything like that. So all of those things would be great, but those are things that have nothing at all to do with uh, with Mashiach. Those, as we said, are byproducts of the true meaning and purpose of creation. Now, um, um, the reason why um, it's going to be advantageous for us. Right. The reason why it's going to be advantageous for us to live in Eretz Yisrael, the reason why uh, having a Beis Hamitash is going to be, uh, is going to be uh, uh, advantageous, why the cessation of war and conflict and all of that is going to be important, is because all of those are, will facilitate and help us be able to serve Hashem better. Because ultimately that's what having Mashiach in the, uh, in the world, having a, uh, an awareness of Mashiach, a revelation of Mashiach, is going to be important because it allows a full uh, service of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, for us to be able to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu without the regular distractions and concerns and anxieties which accompany our, our, our which have accompanied our lives for the past 2,000 years in exile. All of that, like the Gemara says, that it's the... Uh, that one of the excuses we have why we do not fulfill the will of Hashem properly is because of the gullus, the uh, the uh, the uh, the pressures which we experience in our exile existence. So that is a huge impediment and a huge barrier to being able to serve Hakadosh Baruch Hu fully. And upon the arrival of Mashiach, when all of these things fall back into place, what that's going to allow is the fact that we will be able to serve Hashem fully without any of those, uh, without any of those things. So uh, we won't have to uh, worry about the uh, war. We won't, we'll have more time on our hand to focus on our study of Torah, 
to focus on developing a strong and meaningful relationship with Hashem, the things, the uh, those are the reasons why all of these uh, living in Eretz Yisrael and having a base Amitash in the absence of conflict is going to be advantageous. Now, um, in that, ultimately, as, we, as we've been saying, the, the, the ultimate expression of that, the penultimate expression of that, if we'll use that word, is when we have, when the Jewish people as a whole are back in Eretz Yisrael, that the entire nation is the living once again in Eretz Yisrael, and we have a Beis HaMikdash, because when that happens, that the entire Jewish people are once again brought back into Eretz Yisrael, and the, uh, the Beis HaMikdash is rebuilt, so this will be the first time in thousands of years, right? It's something which is so foreign to us, but it'll be the first time in thousands of years that all 613 mitzvahs will be Lamaisa. We haven't had that in almost forever, that, uh, not forever, but in almost, uh, you know, a, a third of our existence of the Jewish people, the most recent third of our existence, we've been without a base on me, just without the ability to fill many, many of the mitzvahs. According to some accounts of the 613 mitzvahs, only 270 of them are relevant, are lemaisa without a base on me, in, in our current existence. So 270 out of 613 is... Less than half. <laughs> so less than half of the Torah has been Lemaisa for us during this time. And with the restoration of, uh, of the Beis HaMikdash and the return to Eretz Yisrael, so everything becomes Lemaisa again. So the whole, uh, almost all of Sefer Vayikra, except for a couple of mitzvahs here or there, much of Sefer Vayikra, as we know, has to do with Korbanos. It has to do with Tumen Tahara. And Korbanus and Tum and Tahara have not been relevant halacha lemaisa for us since we uh, 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 since the uh, destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, and the mitzvahs hatsluyos ba'aretz, those mitzvahs which uh, which we do uh, uh, the agricultural mitzvahs. So those also many of them are related specifically to are are, are uh, applicable and mandatory only when at least the majority of Jews are living in Eretz Yisrael, which also has not been true since. The destruction of the uh, of the Beis Hamikdash. So this is something which is like we uh, like we know by Moshe Rabbeinu that towards the end of his life, even though it was just decreed uh, last week's parsha, the, the week before, um, the last week's parsha, that he's not going to be able to enter into Eretz Yisrael. And at the end of his life, as we get to Sefer uh, Devarim, so Moshe Rabbeinu pleased with Hashem hundreds of times, hundreds of prayers to be able to enter into Eretz Yisrael. And it, the, as Rashi mentions from Chazal, he didn't want to go there because he wanted to go on some sort of tiul. He wasn't looking to, uh, you know, to swim in the banyas or to be able to climb Masada or something like that, just to, to go to the touristy places. Moshe Rabbeinu's desire to go into Eretz Yisrael was because he wanted to be able to uh, be present in the in the Holy Land to be able to experience the kedusha of Eretz Yisrael, the uh, the the experience of that, and that's something which has been denied to us that we haven't really had access to for these thousands of years, and that is going to be one of the uh, most important elements of our uh, our Mashiach existence of our existence at that time. Now it's also interesting that there is one mitzvah which Klai Yisrael has yet to fulfill. So although I said that we haven't, uh, that uh, it'll be the first time that the mitzvah, that all 613 mitzvahs uh, are going to be relevant in thousands of years, there's actually a mitzvah from the time that the Torah was given, 
2448 until the year where we are now, 5781. So for whatever span of year, uh, span of time that is, so there's a mitzvah which has not yet been fulfilled. And this is something, this is used by Chazal as a hint to the idea of Mashiach coming and everybody and the Jewish people being restored to the land together with a functional base on Mikdash. Because the Torah tells us that if you remember that there's a parsha in the Torah, it appears a few times in the Torah, but there's a parsha of the Ari Miklat. Ari Miklat are the cities of refuge in the event that somebody uh, inadvertently kills somebody else. One person, Ruvain, inadvertently kills Shimon. The head of the axe falls off or something like, uh, like that in the, in the forest. So um, Shimon, the victim's relatives, they become the Goel Hadam, they have the right to pursue Ruvain, and if they catch Ruvain, so they could kill him. Maybe a mitzvah to kill him, and maybe permission to kill him, but certainly if they kill Ruvain, so they're not going to be prosecuted as murderers. The only way that Ruvain can avoid being killed is to go ahead and to flee to the Ari Miklat. You have to go to a city of refuge, and he spends the rest of his life in that uh, city of refuge, either the rest of his life or if the coin Gadol dies before, uh, during his lifetime. So upon the death of the coin Gadol, that is the get out of ear Miklat free card, which all of the residents, that's where you clear out the, uh, you clear out the, uh, the city, you do some remodeling, hopefully before some new uh, inadvertent murderers get, uh, get exiled to that, to that place, and you have a chance to do uh, your construction projects at that time. Now, the Torah says that when Hashem enlarges the borders of Eretz Yisrael, so you're going to add three cities. So remember, in Eretz Yisrael proper, there were three. In Eberhar Yarden, there were another three. And we're told that as the borders of Eretz Yisrael expand, we're going to add three more cities of refuge. Now, those three additional cities of refuge have never been established. So it's inconceivable for us to, uh, to, uh, to believe that there's a mitzvah of the Torah that says that when the borders expand, you're going to go ahead and add three additional cities, and that that mitzvah would never have been fulfilled. It's just not possible that, uh, for such a thing to occur. So what we expect is that in the era of Mashiach, when Klai Yisrael returns to Eretz Yisrael, and there'll be the millions of people, and we'll go ahead and we will go occupy Gaza and the Sinai, and we'll go, uh, you know, east of the Jordan River, and we, however far out, we're going to go ahead and expand our, our, our boundaries. So at that time, there is going to be three additional cities of refuge, which are going to be added. What's interesting is, and this highlights one of the first points we made tonight, and that is that we people think that in the era of Mashiach, everything is going to be perfect. Life is going to be perfect. You have the, uh, you know, the lamb lying there with the, uh, the lion or whatever that, uh, you know, you, don't, you don't, no longer need cages around the wild animals. You could go to the zoo and it'll just be this open uh, terrain where all the animals are walking around, uh, you know, singing Kumbaya and all, and all that stuff. But uh, according to what we're saying, that, that's absolutely, that, that absolutely is not going to be true. And not only that, but during that time, it's going to be possible for a Ruvain to inadvertently kill a Shimon. And when Ruvain inadvertently kills Shimon, Shimon's relatives will still have the right to go ahead and pursue Ruvain. And if they catch him, kill him. And Ruvain's only escape, his only safety is going to, insecurity, is going to be to run to the Ir Miklat. 
So we think of ir miklat as something which is necessary in like a gullus type of environment, in a, in a corrupt type of environment where something like that uh, could happen, that people aren't uh, conscious or people aren't careful enough or don't uh, value human life sufficiently that they could be negligent and they could go ahead and inadvertently kill somebody else. But based on what we're saying, this is something which is going to be a concern in something which will arise, even in the era of Mashiach, that there'll be a necessity for our Miklat, for cities of refuge, for those inadvertent uh, murders. Okay. Now, concerning most of the other details, and this is a very important point that the, uh, that the, Rambam, uh, that the Rambam makes. He feels that it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly important point. He says that most of the other details that are going to characterize Mashiach himself, as well as the era, how life is going to be lived in the era of Mashiach. So the Rambam says that this is unclear. We don't know exactly what, uh, we can't uh, uh, paint a picture or describe accurately what, uh, what exactly it's going to be like. And he goes so far as to say, the Rambam, that even in the Gemara itself, even the Chazal in the Gemara, so they had no clear tradition. There was no clear Mesorah on what exactly uh, the era of Meshtech is going to look like. And that's why uh, we know that anybody who studied the topic, especially if you go ahead and you do the Gemaras in the last parak of Sanhedrin, where a lot of this is discussed, a lot of different opinions are there. So there's so many divergent opinions about what the era of Meshtech is going to look like. And the Gemara does not arrive at any sort of definitive conclusion as far as what is, what is going to be. So one are, some people argue they're going to be serving salmon. Some people say it's going to be burger buddies. You have all these different uh, opinions out there. And we don't really have a good way of being able to, uh, to answer that, what, what they are. And the Rambam's approach is, he takes a somewhat uh, practical approach to all this. He says that we have no choice but to wait and see what those details are, how things are going to unfold and how exactly it's going to look. So when we get there, we'll find out. It's on a need-to-know basis. And when we get to that era, so then we'll look around and then we'll, uh, we'll see what it is. And then we'll go back to the various Gemaras, the various opinions in the, in the Gemaras, and we will study them once again in light of how we see things actually unfold and find out their, uh, their inner true, uh, true meaning. But it's not something that we could know today what exactly that era is going to, uh, to look like. And the Rambam says, he actually takes us almost to an extreme, and he writes that it's not even worth one's time studying and searching for the answers to the details of these midrashim. One could go ahead and you know, spend a lifetime, they could go ahead and they could write a PhD thesis about the era of Mashiach, according to Chazal, and try and reconcile all of those opinions and try and paint a complete portrait of what exactly that era is going to look like. But the Rambam says that it's not worth your time. It's not worth the time. It's not worth the effort. We don't even know if you're going to be correct about the, these things. And he says also, he says the pursuit of that knowledge, the pursuit of that, uh, that, uh, uh, that, uh, that, that picture, which a person may try and paint, it doesn't lend to increasing one's love of God or fear of God at all. He says that he maintains that's purely speculative and it's not going to enhance or deepen one's avodah Hashem in any way. And along the same lines, the Ramam was opposed 
to those, and there was something which is a popular pastime, and you find the, you know, when strange things are happening in the world, you hear, you know, stories here and there about this Kabbalist or that Kabbalist, you know, informing us about what exactly, uh, you know, all of these events mean and how close we are to the end of time. So the Rambam actually strongly discouraged people from making, trying to make calculations when Mashiach is going to arrive trying to say it's going to happen in this year, it's going to happen in that year, all of that, uh, all of that, uh, that stuff, all that speculative stuff. So the Rambam was not into that at all. He was actually opposed to it at all. And he maintains that none of those details about when, where, why are fundamental to belief in Mashiach. We have to believe there is going to be a person called Mashiach. We have to believe certain things which he's going to accomplish. He's going to be king. He's going to return the Jewish people to the land. He's going to rebuild the Beis Amitash. The world over is going to acknowledge his prestige and his, his honor and the vital role that he plays. But beyond that, the rest of that is, uh, is pure speculation. And uh, it's not something which is going to enhance one's avodas Hashem. And therefore, a person is better off studying Torah, uh, davening, saying Tehillim, doing chesed, and those types of things, rather than trying to figure out something which is not, uh, does not have uh, such great value to it. Um, right. Anything beyond that is just getting caught up in the minutiae. Okay. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, and this is going to be uh, the question, that probably the last question we're really going to deal with tonight, and that is that why is belief in Mashiach a principle of faith? Now, as we said at the outset tonight, that the, the last four principles revolve around the concept of reward and punishment. So as far as reward and punishment is concerned, so what do we need to know? We need to know... Let me go... Um, we need to know that there is a divine omniscience, hashkacha pratis, that God is overseeing everything. We need to know principle number 11, that there's reward and punishment. So those two, we understand that there has to be, a, a God has to be aware of what's going on, and there's going to be a system of reward and punishment for our behavior. Why is it that you have to believe in the existence of this future character called Mashiach? Why is this something which is going to impact me today? Knowledge of God, of God's existence. Okay, I understand. You need to know that. You can't serve God without knowing of his, his existence. Things related to God's communication with us, the existence of nevuah, prayer, things of that sort. Okay, that also I understand is going to be a fundamental element of, of one's uh, Judaism. The nature of God, all of that is, is fine because all of those things are, are impact my present existence. My present existence as a, uh, as a loyal uh, 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 Jew. So all of those are going to be impacted by those, uh, those concepts. But belief in Mashiach is hugely different, is fundamentally different than all of the rest of those uh, ideas because it's, in the, it's a belief in a future event rather than something which is in the present or something which is in the past, which I need to be aware of because that impacts my presence. So if I don't believe that Torah is mina shamayim, that's going to impact how I study Torah today, or don't study Torah today, if I believe that it's not the, if I were chas v'shom to believe that it was, uh, that it was not from shamayim. So everything else we understand, it either is something which is relevant now, God watches, God rewards, God, pun God punishes, something relevant to the past 
God created, God gave the Torah, God communicated via Nevoah. But this is the first time that we have a belief which is focused on some future event. There will be a Mashiach. Now, hopefully it won't be the too distant future, but it's undeniable that it's a belief of some future event. And the question is, and this just uh, uh, emphasizes the question that we've been asking all along, is why is it that my belief or lack of belief in a future event, how is that going to go ahead and impact my Avodah Hashem today? I'm agnostic about it. You know what? I, I don't know. Maybe there will be Mashiach. Maybe there won't be Mashiach. But when the time comes, when it becomes a, when a, when a fellow gets up and he announces to Klai Yisrael, he WhatsApps all Klai Yisrael, says, "Behold, I am the Messiah." So when he goes ahead and he makes that declaration, okay, we'll deal with it at, at that time. But until that time comes, I'm still going to daven every day. I'm still going to learn every day. I'm still going to do as much chesed as I can. None of my belief or, or lack of belief in Mashiach shouldn't really impact how I'm going to go ahead and live my life as a Jew today. So if it's not really going to impact how I live uh, my, uh, a life as a Jew today, so how could the Rambam go ahead and uh, assert that belief in Mashiach is such a fundamental principle to such a degree, as we've been saying, that if you don't believe in the one of the 13 principles, that means that it's going to uh, handicap so badly one's avodas Hashem that they're going to be uh, that they're going to uh, uh, forfeit their uh, their portion of the world to come. Why is the lack of belief in this future event something which is reason to is grounds to go ahead and forfeit one's world to come? So. We've uh, mentioned in a number of different principles the idea that uh, we can only relate to God uh, when we know that he is concerned about us and our existence. If we were to believe that God is created the world, just said it's spinning like on his fingertip and it's just spinning around by itself and God doesn't pay attention, he's playing golf or he's, uh, you know, surfing somewhere uh, enjoying uh, uh, his retirement now that he's gone ahead and he has created the other uh, world. So then we wouldn't be able to have a meaningful relationship with him. Can't have a meaningful relationship with an indifferent God. So that's something that we've discussed uh, many times. And um, that one of the things which we've, when we talk about the existence of evil in this world, so one of the things which we've said, not really answering why evil exists, but one of the things that we've uh, that we've touched upon and that we've discussed over this uh, this uh, this series is the fact that although uh, um, uh, in Olam Hazah we perceive things as either Hakadosh Baruch Hu being Hatova Meitiv, Hakadosh Baruch Hu doing good things to people, or Hakadosh Baruch Hu can be the Dayan HaEmes, he can be the judge of truth which is what we say when bad things uh, occur. But we always have the belief that at some point in the future, in the era of Mashiach, so everything is going to become clear and God, we will uh, have a better understanding, a deeper understanding and appreciation of all of the events which took place over the course of Jewish history. And we'll see how ultimately everything was for, for the good. On that future day, the future era, he will be one and his name will be one. Everything will be perceived as Hatova Meitiv, as God is, is, is only good. Now, and this is something which uh, the, uh, that belief of that type of thing. So uh, when we think about it, uh, how many people 
um, uh, uh, sadly, I'm not, the, uh, it, it's not blaming, but it's, it was a sad consequence of the Holocaust that even many of the people who survived, their faith was completely shattered. To go ahead and try and pick up a sitter and daven, to go ahead and try and sit at a Pesach Seder, to try and do anything Jewish whatsoever was impossible for them. It was impossible for them as a result of the trauma and the suffering and what they had to endure and what they had to experience. It was something which cannot, uh, which is an unimaginable um, uh, experience which they, which they went through. And, but the question that we have ourselves, that we all ask is, anybody, any uh, thinking person is, uh, has to ask is, how could God let this happen? How did, if Hashem is truly a loving God, if the, if the Jewish people are his chosen people, the one whose destiny it is to bring the world into its state of perfection, how could he allow the Jewish people to suffer as, as they did? This is certainly not the way a loving parent is going to treat their child or treat their, uh, their, their children. So if we think about that question seriously, so we are led to, uh, in, in the, we don't have an answer to that. There's no answer which anybody could provide as to why it happened and how Hashem was able to, uh, to, uh, to let that happen. So that should become this huge barrier in terms of our continued uh, commitment to observe Torah and uh, observe mitzvahs, to study Torah and observe mitzvahs. Because it, it, it's essentially, it's a pircha, it's a question, it, 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 it's, a, it's a question which undermines every element of our belief in a loving God when we have uh, witnessed and we have experienced what seems to be a direct contradiction to that and a demonstration of his lack, of, the, the lack of love. Now, the only reason we continue, what gives us that, uh, that, uh, that motivation and the energy to, uh, to continue is because we have faith in that, uh, uh, that in the, at some point in the future, Mashiach is going to come. And at that point in the future, when Mashiach comes, he will then explain to us why everything had to be the way it was. And why it actually was an expression of love that Akash Baruch Hu had for us. Although right now it's impossible for us to be able to perceive that. And it's impossible for us to, be, to understand that. But nonetheless when we're able to see things the way God does, and we're able to see all the different factors and all of the different issues which were, which, were, uh, which were relevant, and the necessity for all of that, so that's when everything falls into focus, and we, will, uh, we, uh, we are confident that at that future point, we will understand exactly why all of that, uh, that occurred. So the idea, the, the belief in a Mashiach, and the belief in a Mashiach who's going to help us, who's going to facilitate our understanding of Jewish history and the tragedies of Jewish history. So that's the light at the end of the tunnel, which allows us to be able to continue to serve God. Because if we didn't have that light at the end of the tunnel, similar to the people who were survivors of the Holocaust, without that, uh, that uh, light at the end of the tunnel, so you, you experience tragedy, you experience that level of trauma, there's no turning back from that. There's no going back after that. You can't just flip off that switch and say, okay, I'm now in a place of uh, you know, physical safety, and I'm going to resume my, uh, you know, my pre-Holocaust life. There's no such thing. You get to that point, and it's impossible to, uh, to turn back. The only way to be able to, uh, to go through that is because you, we know that there is going to be this explanation, there is going to be this understanding, which eventually we will, uh, we will achieve. The analogy which, uh, which, uh, which I, I would give is uh, somebody, who is, uh, um, uh, somebody who, is, who wants to become a Marine. 
So somebody's going to become a Marine. The only way to become a Marine is you have to go through boot camp, whatever Marine boot camp, if there's a special name for it, I don't know, but you have to go through boot camp. And as everybody knows, whether you're a Marine or not, I don't know if any of us here are Marines, but uh, that everybody understands that to be able to, uh, to go through that, so that requires, an a person endures an incredible amount of pain, an incredible amount of torture, physical, emotional abuse, verbal abuse. It's not something which is pleasant for any of the people who are involved. And that's why even if you go even further, you try and join a special ops uh, a group. So special ops is going to be even more difficult uh, to be able to endure. And their, their purpose is to see, to try their hardest to break you, because if they could break you, then you don't qualify. And they have to be able to weed out those people who can be easily broken in order to be left with the best of the best and the strongest willed people, not necessarily strongest muscle-wise, but the strongest character-wise and the strongest willed people to be able to then train them in whatever special ops they're, they're, they're eventually going to do. So why would anybody knowingly and consciously and willingly submit themselves to that level of torture and abuse which you have to go through in order to be able to uh, to to uh, to be a marine to be an army ranger to be a navy seal to be any one of those things why would anybody do that so we know the reason they do that is because they know that at the other end of the tunnel there's a goal which they are going to achieve which they want and being that there's a ultimate goal which they hope to achieve which they hope to uh, to realize so that motivates them and that uh, that gives them the, the strength in the endurance to be able to manage all of the difficulty, the tremendous difficulty and the tremendous pain which they have to, uh, which they have to go through, which they have to endure in that process in order to be able to realize their, uh, their ultimate goal. And as soon as you lose track of that ultimate goal, so then you just, uh, you just can't go on anymore. You just can't, uh, you can't, uh, you can't uh, do it anymore. And so this is the same thing. The same principle is true for us as, as a nation, that the belief of Mashiach is not simply a belief of some future event which is going to take place that has no relevance to the here and now, to the present in which we find ourselves. Belief of Mashiach is something which is an essential part of our gullous existence. The only way that we can endure the torturous exile which we've experienced for the past 2,000 years or, or, or so, 2,000 years plus, is only because we have this belief that there will be an era when everything will once again be restored. And not only is it a belief that once again, everything is going to be restored to its uh, ideal um, uh, settings and the preferred manner of, uh, of the existence of the Jewish people with the Beis Amitosh living in Eretz Yisrael and all of that, but it also allows us to be able to collectively, not as individuals necessarily, but collectively to be able to endure the inquisitions and crusades and pogroms and holocaust and the anti-Semitism, which continues to, uh, you know, to, uh, to this day. Like we say in the Seder, behold over the door, only malenu We actually see that visibly before our eyes, that, uh, that part of the Haggadah taking place in what gives us the, the strength and the ability to be able to endure that is because we know that eventually everything is going to make sense in the end. And it's that belief, it's that element of the belief of Mashiach, which is the fundamental part, which is the essential part, which, which we have to have in order to be able to, uh, in order to, be able to, uh, to survive this. Um, okay, 
I think there's a good place for us to uh, to stop in this uh, this principle. So pick it up from uh, from here next week. I think it'll probably be the same time. I think we'll still be on the uh, the same schedule. Okay, we'll see Thank you, you all uh, hopefully Thursday. Uh, but